Welcome to the Sport Mind podcast series, where I sit down with world-leading guests and unlock the secrets to mental strength in sports. Today, before you dive into the episode, I have something special for all listeners. Are you struggling with self-doubt, overwhelmed by performance anxiety, battling inconsistency, or facing fear of failure in your sport? Are you looking to overcome these obstacles and conquer the mental game? Well, I've got just the toolkit for you. An ebook I wrote called Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, which you can get today completely free of charge. This comprehensive ebook is a treasure trove of practical and actionable strategies tailored for athletes who want to unblock the most common mental obstacles. Each chapter offers digestible advice, providing immediate tools you can apply to enhance your mental game. Readers have been raving about the insights and the transformations they've experienced with this guide. Teresa from California emailed recently saying, your guide is brilliantly helpful. I've just been getting into it and I'm truly excited to use it to help with the obstacles I face regularly. I wrote this ebook to be concise, punchy, and most importantly, practical for immediate application. And the best part, it's completely free, a token of your commitment to your mental and athletic growth. So click on the link in the show notes right now to grab your copy of Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, or simply visit the SportMind Hub by Googling SportMind Hub. Equip yourself today with the knowledge and tools to face those mental challenges head on. Now, let's jump into today's episode and get ready to elevate your mental game to the next level. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to your next installment of the podcast series. Well, due to the depth and the nature of our first conversation, I'm delighted to have back on the show Dr. Martin Turner for a second part. We both felt there was a lot more to explore in our conversation and decided it was definitely worthwhile to continue the conversation and to discuss more practical tools for the mind and optimizing our thoughts into a rational manner in order to get the best out of ourselves. If you have yet to listen to part one of our conversation, I would highly recommend you go and do so as we do pick up on topics from part one and in order to gain a deeper understanding of the topics and the terminology, it will be worth going through part one. However, if you would like to join right here, you will still get a lot of deep knowledge and awesome advice from Martin. So in this episode, we kick off with a huge and highly important topic of mental health in athletes and high achievers, and how to strike a good balance here between the two states. We also discuss the most common themes he observes when it comes to successful people and how you should look to check if you have these within yourself. We also discuss the opposite of what this is and what the worst habits he sees in his clients that fall short of their goals. I also put a couple of situations in front of Martin that athletes suffer with when it comes to not performing at their best and how to use REBT in these situations to manage the emotions and to still get the best out of themselves. We close this wonderful conversation by investigating the depth of his book, The Rational Practitioner, available now at all good online book outlets and the value this will hold if you get it. We also talk about the benefit of what walking a banana would have. Yes, you've heard me right, banana walkers. This is well worth a listen just to find out the answer to this final question I have for him. Thanks once again to Dr. Martin Turner for his passion and knowledge on the subject of REBT and the huge role this can play when it comes to living a fulfilled and contented life. Please enjoy. 
Dr. Martin Turner, welcome back to part two already. Um, it's only only been about a week or so, but I think um, well, I, I was super inspired by our chats and thanks for being kind enough to jump back on because there's definitely some rabbit holes I don't think we uh, we went down so much. Um, and yeah, there, there, there's a whole bunch of questions we already had offline, but listen, I'm going to jump straight in, man. I think uh, a good place if, if people have listened to the first podcast, let's get straight into this. So um, I'm going to go in with a pretty, pretty punchy topic to start, I think, um, mental health, mental health of athletes, mental health of high achievers. And sometimes these two things might not align because possibly people are pushing and pushing and pushing and, and the, the achievement, the success and, and all that that comes with it. So in you, with your REB, REBT hat on, how do you get that balance right between those things? It's a good question. And I think it's something that we're all becoming obviously more aware of as, you know, as practitioners, researchers, as people that interact with the media, um, you can see this kind of mushrooming more and more, I think. Um, I mean, my approach to this, so I wrote something in 2016 that I published in uh, Frontiers, which was, you know, what could RBT tell us? What could RBT, RBT do for us in that mental health space? And we have to remember that RBT did come from that clinical space, it did come from from that, that kind of more mental health driven space. So the way that we're using it in sport, whilst we are, kind of adapting it within a particular context. We are pretty much using it in the way that it should be used, quote unquote. Um, so I think there are various bits and pieces from RBT, whether it's whether it's the the, the addressing of irrational beliefs, whether mm-hmm. it's this recognition that um, there are ways that you might be perceiving things and appraising things which might be helpful versus unhelpful, whether it's the recognition that the emotions you're experiencing could be functional or dysfunctional i think there's a lot of room in there to maneuver from a mental health perspective mm-hmm. but i think one of the one of the, some of the, sometimes we do get challenged as rbt practitioners because as we spoke about last week rbt has this framework this gabc and part of that gabc is, is trying to help the individual to understand that there are might be things that they believe and think that might be contributing to their suffering so within a mental health space, you have to handle that quite delicately because what we don't want to do is victim blame. Sure. You know, so it's not the case that, that you are just making these things up and disturbing yourself and making up your own emotions. I mean, you do create your emotions to an extent. Um, but when we look at the particularly the ABC parts, it's A times B equals C. So what we're not saying is the A completely causes C and what we're not saying is the B completely causes C Mm -hmm. so when we have individuals who are really suffering we can address A we can look at the situations and the adversities that they're experiencing and try to help them to change those situations and to address those situations that might mean having a difficult conversation with somebody who is who is mistreating them or being unfair to them it might mean changing the way they engage with their environment, changing their training and working practices. We, in RBT, we don't just say, oh, forget the A, forget the situation, forget the adversity in the event, only focus on B. That's that's a misconstrual of REBT. Mm-hmm. So I think when you're working in that mental health space, you have to look at the framework more broadly. Even when you're working on a performance issue, I would say that it makes sense to look at the framework more broadly. Don't just focus on the irrational beliefs. Now, we do have good data. And for sure, individuals 
who have these kind of deeply held irrational beliefs um, are more likely to suffer when they face difficulties from an emotional perspective. They are more likely to, to have a degradation in their psychological health because these beliefs are very extreme. They're very rigid. They're inconsistent with reality. Um, so, so, so obviously beliefs are important, but it's, it's not, not the only thing that we focus on in RBT. There's all this other stuff that we can think about to help people when they're suffering. Yep. Sure. So people that might just be joining in at this moment, um, could you just give the the, the brief framework of the ABC? You mentioned actually mm. GABC. I don't think we spoke yes. about that last time. So so can you just put a bit of context around that for a sec? Of course. Yeah. So, I mean, G has been, I wouldn't say it's been forgotten about, but not many people talk about G because, um, you know, it's nice when something starts with A, especially <laughs> if the following letters are B and C. Catchy. Mm. exactly you know and the abc you know it does work quite well and 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 basically when you're when you're working with a performer then that there's an extent to which they don't really need to understand the intricacies of the framework the abc is often enough to teach somebody for them to say oh okay yeah so i could shift a few of the things that i'm thinking and and some of my beliefs and maybe i'll maybe i'll, I'll uh you know maybe i'll be able to experience some more healthy emotions or maybe i'll be i'll be able to drive towards my goals better so the ABC is just fine for practice. But in terms of the GABC, what we have is goals, the G, obviously, adversity, beliefs, and consequences. So those consequences are the consequence of the interaction between G, A, and B. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, as human beings, we're mobile creatures. We, you know, so we have to figure out where to move to. We have to figure out where to go. Um, and often in sports psychology, we have the term, you know, goal setting and stuff like that. I mean, in RBT, it just recognizes that, that human beings have these kind of fundamental goals, but also we have goals that aren't necessarily fundamental. They're more like just important things we would like to do in our life. Mm-hmm. So fundamental goals would be, you know, kind of survival related, whereas um, these other goals are, you know, just might be vocational goals, athletic goals, relationship goals, you know? So we have these, these this this framework of goals that, that are, is important to people and have any conversation with any performer about goals and it, it gets very complicated very quickly because people's goals are nested within other goals and built on top of other goals. And But ultimately in RBT it says that, okay, you, you will drive towards something because you're a human being and that tends to be what we do. Now, as you do that, because you are limited as a human being, you'll get ill, you'll get injured, you'll fail, you're not perfect by nature. And because the world is unpredictable, uncertain and uncontrollable, you will just by nature of having goals, you will face adversity, you'll face barriers to those goals. And if you apply um, distorted ways of thinking to that adversity that blocks your goals, which they will, because you're a human being, um, then you will experience unhealthy consequences at sea. So there'll be emotional, behavioral. So, you know, you might experience extreme levels of anxiety or shame or anger and the behaviors that are associated with with that emotion are not going to help you to fulfill that goal. Mm -hmm. So an unhealthy anger response might be violence, uh, might be revenge rather than being assertive and addressing the problem, you know, so this is really this framework is a fundamental to how we understand the human psyche 
with an RVT, but be fundamental to how we actually practice because obviously we're trying to help people to address the B, but that's not our only option. You know, we, for example, if you're experiencing anxiety due to a really important goal that, uh, and there's an adversity that you know is coming up, that this goal is in jeopardy, then one of the easiest ways that I can help you to reduce your anxiety is just to remove the goal. Right. Now that that isn't that isn't a very sophisticated solution because you know if you don't have goals then you're not going to fulfill your potential mm. whatever that means but whatever fulfilling your potential means it means driving towards those ideals that you have in mind you know driving towards those goals. Mm. Um you know enacting your values in that performance environment. So the framework allows us to see well there are some some options here that we can work with people. Ideally, we try to work with B, but we can work with A. We can work to remove some of those adversities, sure. not all adversities, because, you know, but, but at least we can stop creating our own adversity. Mm-hmm. And we can also work with G. We can help people to, to construct goals that are, that are functional and make it less likely that it might face particular adversities. And uh, so we can help people prepare for that. So it's kind of, it's a reactive framework in some ways when somebody's suffering, but in lots of ways, it's a proactive framework because we can look towards the future and say, how might this framework play out for you going forward into those goals? Mm, What adversities are you likely to experience? What beliefs do you have in place that are going to make those adversities more difficult to move past? What emotions and behaviors are you likely to experience that might take you away from or towards um, your goal? Mm. Yeah, no, really, really well said there. And I, the, the goal setting has, has always been something I've, I've struggled with as, as personal level when I was a competitor and actually when I'm, I'm trying to help some athletes. And the, the thing I'm just toggling and playing around with is you get your goals here, you get your behaviors there and I'm using my hands and you kind of align those two things. If there's a mismatch, if your behaviors are dropping below your goals, okay, you need to, you need something needs to change. You either need to accept your behaviors are as good as they're going to be and drop your goals to align to those behaviors. Mm-hmm. Or you got to go, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm poor on my behaviors. I need to get them back in line with my goals. Yeah. A really, really simple way to look at it. And I found that that that's slightly more useful with some of the, the people I'm working with because it's not this kind of be all and end all like goal. And you're so like blinkered and, you know, you're completely missing things in your periphery. So I think, yeah, you, you said that in such a great way as well. Well, um, well, taking it back to the Stoics, I mean, what do you want to do? You're suffering. You're not moving to where you want to move towards. So what are our choices? We've got good choices and bad choices. I know good good and bad are relative terms. But it, good and bad for the pursuit of that goal. Okay, well, one of the things you could do is lower your expectations and your goals. Okay, well, as a performer, I don't want to do that because I do deeply want to fulfill my potential. and I believe that I can do it, so I don't want to drop my goals. Okay, well, let's look around your environment and change everything that we can. That doesn't seem like a very good solution to me because it's A, impossible, and B, it seems like you'd be spending a lot of energy focusing on things that are nothing to do with you. So in RBT, we we move towards what can we control? So it's those internal things, those internal states. We can realign our beliefs. We can um, develop these philosophies that might help us in the short and long term, but also just those, those more acute cognitions, those days where we... Um, where we are berating ourselves and telling us things that that are, that are not, not going to necessarily encourage us, we can look to change those things. So it's it's for me, we have we have good choices and bad choices. Good being the ones that we can actually enact 
and do something about it. And the bad choices being things that, that aren't really possible to achieve or are not going to be helpful in the long term. And so, of course, we can always help people to, to um, you know, to change their goals or to lower their expectations and standards. But that, to me, is rarely the option that a performer would choose. And I think rightly so. Now, there are, Kate, there are times where somebody is just in a hole. You know what I mean? They're just in a pit. And at that point, to relieve some pressure, then it makes sense to me that you would you would absolutely scale down your goals a little bit and just say, look, okay, for the next for the next however long, let's just let's just lower these goals a little bit. Let's just take some pressure off. Mm. But um, I would say for the most part, that tends not to be the most optimal solution. Yeah, sure. Yeah, maybe just touching on that on that idea about cultivating some small wins, you know, getting a bit of momentum and traction with those small wins and those small wins can start to build. But I know high performers yeah. sometimes don't really gravitate to that. Um, have you come across that study? I, I heard it recently again in an audio book um, where, where the, you know, they trying to measure contentedness and happiness in, in nations. And I think mm. they got like the Danes. They, they keep coming back to the Danish, the, the Scandinavians yes. in particular. And actually what they found is they are really good at lowering their expectations of of a lot of things and um and and again it's not it's it's quite interesting because that straight away sounds quite a negative passive down dire way of thinking but actually when they do it well it's 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 kind of a stoic way of thinking isn't it Mm -hmm. have you come across that study or or heard about a version of that Uh, well uh, yeah I've, i've seen lots of versions of these kind of national surveys where we have um you know you know, ratings of psychological health, well-being, contentment and stuff. In Scandinavians, yes, they do tend to score quite highly in these things. But for me, happiness it really isn't an appropriate goal for a human being. But if, if, if part of the meaning of life or part of our purpose being here is to attain happiness, then we completely failed. 100%. You know, I think, um, I mean, I'm a big fan of the philosopher Schopenhauer. And Schopenhauer's philosophy was was actually it's, it's more likely that part of our purpose is to suffer and to set meaningful enough goals and do meaningful enough things in our life to make that suffering worth it or to fortify us against that suffering. So if you're gonna if you if you're gonna put those two, you know if you're gonna clash those two, suffering or happiness, suffering is is by far the more ubiquitous experience compared to happiness. I also think that we, we, I think we experience happiness often when something unexpected happens, obviously something positive, but when something unexpected happens, um, my experience of working with performers and many other practitioners experience working with performers who are spoken to seems to be that when that individual does attain that goal that they've held for a long period of time, it's a complex mix of emotions and often happiness it, it, it doesn't take place to the extent that the performer would often think it would. It's usually a mixture of, of relief and got a bit of anxiety, really. You know, what do I do next? And um, how do I repeat success? Happiness to me seems like a, a kind of a facile, um, almost, you know, just it, it just seems, it feels like a superficial goal in some ways. It feels like something you shouldn't be aiming towards, but something you should grab with both hands if you get the opportunity to experience it. You know, you, you try to work towards important things. You try to have social utility um, and try to be valued as a human being. And if through those, um, if through those pursuits and actions, you experience happiness, then, then, you know, literally happy days. Mm. 
But if yeah. you, you know, so I, I don't think it's something we should aim towards. And the danger of these surveys and, and these statistics is that we, we, members of the public assume that, okay, I should be driving towards happiness. And often that just means um, hedonism, mm. short-term hedonism. I'm going to buy everything that I want. I'm going to do everything that I want. And that, again, is not a good long-term solution for contentment and well-being. Mm. Well, yeah, maybe just I want to pick on that little little thread there. Um, hedonic adaptation, hedonic treadmill. It's it's a, it's a real interesting thing. I I find it interesting reading about. It. I was very guilty of it at, at certain points, ranging from the materialistic stuff, ranging from the success type of thing, and and it was never enough. You know, I got my dream watch one time, and mm. within within a week, I was already back online looking at the slightly better ones, and I was like, yeah, what am yeah. I doing? It's so so when you're coming in regard to, um, the athletes or even anyone, I suppose, but high performers looking to to achieve that success, how do you help them calibrate the hedonic adaptation part of human nature, possibly? Mm, yeah. Well, one of the things that I've been doing, been thinking and writing about and reading about is more about eudaimonia, which again is a stoic principle, but it's something that's nested within RBT and is kind of an antidote to that hedonism in some ways. It's about what will it take for you to be able to look back on your life and say, I lived a good life. You know, so it's more well-being focused. And I know well-being is a woolly term, but eudaimonia is, 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 is about, you know, having those functional, healthy emotions, even though those emotions might not always be positive. No, it's about function. Mm-hmm. It's about living for the long term and being able to look back on your life and say, oh, actually, I you know, we did some good stuff there. This was a, a life worth living. So we try to get athletes who are, you know, particularly athletes because they are in a relatively short-term career, not all sports, but but many sports have a, a short-term time span. It's getting them to think beyond that horizon, really, as to what kind of human being are you building? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think when we focus on, things that are too short-term, we sacrifice some of that long-term stuff. And it makes sense. Look, we've only been surviving as a human species till our 60s, 70s, and 80s for a very short period of time. You know, you go go back to the 1700s, like we lived about like 45. You know, you go further back and, and uh, our life course starts to dwindle. So we have this this brain and this body that is not necessarily automatically set up for for a super long term way of thinking. Sure, you know, so it, it makes sense that that many people do struggle with that that aspect, that kind of short termism and that that hedonism. I think what we do have though as human beings is the ability to look into the future, like almost uh, I think no other mammal can really do that. And we can look into that future. We can kind of say you know what is our what is our end point in terms of our contentment um what kind of like i said before what kind of human being am i building nice, yeah. i think if you if you can focus on those things more than how am i going to get the most enjoyment out of life how am i going to get the most enjoyment out of next week and i think that it helps you to make the necessary sacrifices that might lead to more long-term well-being and mental health as well as you know potentially performance success and i say potentially because i i i don't i just don't believe that performance success is a worthy sacrifice when it's compared to our physical and mental health and if an individual has to choose between 
a trophy and their mental health. I believe they should choose their mental health. Now, there might be others listening to this that would have a different viewpoint, uh, and that's fine. But I think that, um, and I also don't buy this idea that if you focus on your well-being and mental health, then performance will come. I don't know. It's not my experience. My experience is some of the best performances, performers absolutely sacrifice everything in their lives, including the, 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 you know, the future them, including the people around them, including their health, to get those trophies and medals. Look, if that's something you want to do, then, then fine. But we can at least tell you what the dangers are. Sure. We can at least talk to you about what life's going to look like over the life course. Mm. At least do that education work and, 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 and try to fortify them against that stuff. Um, so there, there is this narrative that you would see around, well, you know, if you get well-being, right, then performance will come. I actually, I, I, can't think of, I can't think of any studies, really, that have shown... You know what I mean? Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. kind of a this mm. is kind of a rhetoric that's nice to believe. It is, yeah. I don't yeah. know if it's true. Mm. I don't have the data to show. Well, that, me. That, that would be the interesting next step, you know, of a longitudinal study to see if 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 that data is producing. You go, okay, I don't know. Let's just pick Roger Federer. Like he on the outside, mm. he looks very content and happy and mentally very stable. And yes, that's the results he's produced. But again, how would you even start unpacking that? And I know as a kid he was, or even as a teen and early twenties, he was he was a nightmare. Like he was terrible yeah. and blowing up and destructive and all that stuff. So no, that's, I think that's, just to be. I think just to wrap that that bit up, really, because I think it is complicated for me. My the goal of the work that I do is absolutely centered around eudaimonia, but well-being. It's I would say it's mostly um, about those features of eudaimonia that are about long-term contentment. Mm-hmm. That's what that you know that, the, the work that I'm doing. That's the long-term vision that I have for the individual going in, mm-hmm. but the individual coming into that work might have a completely different viewpoint and they might only be interested in that short, short term, you know, that, he- that kind of more hedonism mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. So you, you balance that off and you try to work in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whilst I can't be certain that this focus on well-being might generate optimal performance, I think it's still worth it for me to have that focus because I think it's the more important focus. But I'll still work with people on obviously short-term performance gains because mm. that's the industry and and mm. I want to help people to pursue their goals. But I will almost always educate them around just be aware, mm. just have some awareness around this, that how much are you sacrificing to get what you want in the short term? Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's, I think that's... We, are, we, are in a, uh, we are in a place in, in performance psychology where, we st- where we're, we're still having those discussions, aren't we, around those two, those mm. performance and well-being things and mm. can they interact? How do they interact? Can one feed the other? You know. So, so it sounds a beautiful journey, a beautiful challenge to keep, uh, keep, keep toggling. And maybe, maybe there's just different dials and levers at certain points. Maybe you need to pull the kind of the well-being lever a little bit stronger at times. Maybe the performance lever needs to be a bit stronger. And yeah, may, maybe it's working on those toggles. And- but I just think if, 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 if you're a content, healthy, functional human being that doesn't win a gold medal, then I think that's better than the opposite. I would agree. I'd agree. And, and when I say better... It, it's quantitatively better mm. because you will suffer less. You see, so it's like how much do you sacrifice for glory and is the glory worth it? 
And I think what we're realizing is that for, for a lot of people, the glory isn't worth it. Even, you know, let, let's not even talk about athletes, talk about our, ourselves. You know, how much sacrifice did did we make to get some of the qualifications that we've got, for example, or some of the things that we've done? And you get that thing and you think, well, I don't, I don't know, actually. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Was it worth it? I don't know. I mean, you sacrifice a lot to to to, to attain certain qualifications. For example, sport and exercise psychologists trying to be chartered and get HCPC registration or, or you know, postgraduate students trying to get PhDs. And you maybe convince yourself that on your graduation day, you'll be super happy, but you're usually not. It's so what's true. next. So true. Mm. What's next? You know, and it opens more doors than it closes. And that's, that's an existential problem, <laughs> not necessarily one that, you know, can, can crush you, but it's still an existential problem that you need to solve. It's not all happy and light just because yeah. you achieve something, you know. So mm. if we can help people to have a long-term focus, then maybe for some individuals it does mean that they don't attain everything that they want in that sport. But maybe that doesn't matter because, after all, they're a human being, not just an athlete, you know. Mm. It's, you, you, you're, you're speaking a lot of, of what I'm, I'm trying to work on with just mentioning with some of the people is, is, is your future self. You know, that future self you see yourself, are they coaching your current self? Are they giving advice to that current self that is, is productive, is right? But again, having some interesting conversations about people going, but no, I, I want my future self at dinner parties to say, yes, I won these gold medals. <laughs> mm, <laughs> like, yeah. I'm like, it's such a, such a hard balance because some people see their future self as, have, and these are maybe kind of youngsters in their twenties and yes, they're yes. kind of, yeah, maybe it's a maturity thing as well going, actually it's all like, and you said, it's so great when you achieve that thing that I don't know, society and Hollywood and all that says that we should achieve and mm. you get there and it's like, and you, and you see, you know, Rocky punching the air and his whole life is great, but actually like the film stops there, doesn't it? But real life but, doesn't but stop at see, that moment. But you see how you could weaponize that kind of argument as well, because if I'm a coach and I'm trying to get the best out of my athletes, I can say, don't you want to be the kind of person who at dinner parties can tell people that you've won a gold medal? So we can weaponize that kind of sort of transactional motivation, you know, and so much, we, can, yeah. we can draw on their ego and we can get them to think about a future self who is interested in what other people think and other people's opinions and, and uh, your kind of sort of impression formation. So it's like, yeah, you could do that. Mm. But I mean, <laughs> it, 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 it just seems why would you base your goals on something that's uncontrollable i.e the perception of other people about you mm. you know it's it, uh, try to help people to base their goals values on stuff that they might be able to control or have at least some control over you know mm. um, it sounds um it, well yeah it sounds a lot sexier to to kind of say hey listen yeah you can tell people at dinner parties the amount of gold medals you want or you can be at a slightly less glitzy dinner party and be talking about how good of a person you you have been and it's it's again yeah. i i know the one i would choose but you know well i would say if, if you're the kind of person that's at a dinner party telling people what a good person you are <laughs> <laughs> that is the problem. <laughs> Let's unpack that. But unpack you, that. I, I do agree with you there, and I think it's also it's also you know we're in that age of of social media where we've seen this. I don't want to have a dig at social media, even though we could spend a lot of time on that. But we are in an age where people are people can can really be the architect of their kind of um, you know their narrative and everything. Their narrative and and the impression that people form of them, they can start to curate that in a way that probably wasn't possible before so i think it's 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 like um you're gonna go to dinner party and tell people all the good stuff 
so I won this gold medal. Are you then going to tell them about all the things that didn't go well for you and the relationships that have been burned and the weddings that you've missed and the birthdays you've missed and the births of nieces and nephews that you've missed? Are you going to tell them all that stuff as well? Because there's there's a balance there and, and mm. there, there are big sacrifices that go behind, you know, and I just find it interesting when people get criticism around athletes who would get like OBEs and stuff when they achieve something. It's like, you know, we, we do need a better window into the sacrifices that, that they make and the and what they represent to us as a society. Mm. They forthrightly head into the unknown and try to better themselves Sometimes for hedonistic reasons, sometimes for for no, for more noble reasons, but they still, for the most part, I believe, represent um, a noble human ideal. You know that pursuit of bettering yourself and 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 taking on the unknown, going to slay the dragon. That's a hero myth that we have going back through the ages, and I mm. think it's still true today. And I think we do see it in our athletes. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's like. Uh, you know, we're in a weird place from a media perspective, particularly yeah. with high performers. But I always try to, I always try to think about that when I'm um, engaging within the performance environment of who's my audience, these athletes mm. who are really doing this because, for the most part, they have a deep passion. Well, there to, was to um, take on the unknown. There, there was a great debate that 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 kind of started on the radio the other day. Um, you might have heard Harry Kane. I think has been given the freedom of the city of Walthamstow or something like that, like, like mm. the part of London he grew up grew up in. And one of the people was saying, "Oh, like you know, that's like oh yeah, he, he hasn't really achieved much with Tottenham, and and what does he achieve with England?" Other person was like, "Forget that. Look at what like he's how many red cards he's got. What a what a role model he's been for yeah. a younger mm. generation." We've got the World Cup coming up. He's still playing every match for Tottenham. He's not shirking his responsibilities there. Yeah. And it was such a great argument because one person was just literally results-based. What has he actually achieved? The other person was like, actually, as a role model with all these footballers yeah. that might not be great role models, yeah. look yeah. at him as, as as a human being. I thought it was a really cool debate um, just That's around those two. Yeah, it was a great point. I wish, we would, I wish we just would be more nuanced and look more deeply at, at these individuals and who they are. I mean, mm. I wrote a piece a few years ago about Marcus Rashford. Yeah, I read that. And there were some question marks at that time around, oh, will it affect his performance? And it's like, so what? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just strange kind of, he's helping kids. I know. So he might score less goals. Okay. (laughs) I think as a society, we can take that. Mm. You know, if you're a Man U fan, maybe that's unacceptable to you. But um, I think it's completely acceptable that a a human being has, has a great social utility. Right, yeah. You know, um, so you, yeah, you do see those debates, and we do treat sports people, especially footballers, in a strange way as a society. Mm. And just because you know, lots of footballers are paid really well as well. It's like it's a bit of a red herring, really. We have to try to look past that a little bit and try to understand that they're just part of a, a market and a business. And they're making mm. deep sacrifices to attain what they're attaining. Mm. Trying to look past that money stuff, you know. Yeah, I, again, maybe maybe there's a bit of a confirmation bias, but I am seeing more and more of those stories come out, those positive ones about the 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 the, the human being, the depth of what they've done and gone to, and and yeah, hopefully that narrative keeps going. So, well done for your piece and 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 speaking about it. Um, so great. I maybe just change tracks a little bit here, Martin. Um. With high performers, I'm always interested to find common good themes and habits and behaviors. So does anything come to mind that you see about uh, some, you know, the the commonness of the habits, behaviors of high performers? 
for me, there's like one key behavior. And there's lots of things we could talk about here, by the way. And, and and I know lots of people have different perspectives on this. But for me, and I'm realizing this more and more, and this isn't just athletes, engagement. It's just, you know, engagement is, is, you could say it's a behavior, but it's also a psychological approach. But it, to what extent is the performer engaging in their performance environment? Okay. In as in as many ways, I wouldn't say as many ways as possible because you don't want to be spread too thinly. Mm-hmm. But how selective are they in their engagement, and how meaningfully do they engage? Can you give examples in, in, in the things? So, for example, you might have, you would have experienced this. You've given a, a workshop to athletes on I don't know, you know, self confidence or something. You know, just a few tips, ideas. Here's what it is. What do we think in the audience? Blah blah blah. To what extent does the athlete engage with you as the practitioner in that moment? To what extent do they engage with people around them and, and, and share what they've learned with others or ask questions of, of the expertise around them in terms of just within the athlete group, just within the players? You, you can see it when, you, when, you're exper- when you're an experienced practitioner and you're delivering particularly group work, you can see this engagement. You know, when you look yeah, out, yeah, you yeah. Know I'm literally that thinking that, that the other day it exactly happened to me, and and I can see the eyes of the people that were there. I right. can see the body language of the people that would just, and I was looking at them yes. literally, and their body language there, just where they were looking. So well, yeah. one of the one of the great things about our eyes, and there is there is an argument that our eyes possibly evolved partly for this person to have white space, and then you know at the center part because we can tell where people are looking. You think about mammals and creatures that don't have eyes like us very difficult to tell what you know where they're looking so we can absolutely tell when somebody's engaging with us and that is a fundamental human process for communication which our ability to communicate and use language is one of the reasons we've developed into the species that we are Mm. so engagement for me is like rule one engage um you know chris shambrook remember going to one of his talks and he said that a lot of the performers he's worked with um, exploit the support around them, not exploit in a bad way. They're not exploitative mm-hmm. in that negative sense, but they make the most of, they utilize the support that's available in their downtime. They're talking to, to physio, medical, psychologist, coach about how do I improve, how do I get better? They're engaging with people around them for the purposes of, of, of improving themselves, improving the team, again, having that social utility, but also just in the interest of being part of uh, a performance community. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's like, you know, that, that, that engagement at that level that we're talking about in a workshop is that acute level that you can tell that somebody's engaging with you at a one-to-one level, that's slightly easier to obtain because there's, you know, but, um, I think it, it's just, you know, that's one example, but it's just broader than that. That's great. And we can see it. We, you know, when you spend some time with the team, you can see the people that are just really actively engaging in that. And, you know, when I'm teaching students, it's the same. We speak a lot um, in universities and institutions around student engagement. What does that mean? Does it mean attending a lecture? Well, that's a small part of it. But when you're in that lecture, to what extent are you engaging in the content and the material and people around you? So for me, that, that's such a key performance behavior, engagement. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, 
So there's a couple of threads I, I, I want to pull on there quickly. Um, there's a piece I wrote called trying versus efforts. Trying for me is, is the body moving in space. You look like you're playing your sport. You're, you're physically there, but effort is the mind and the body in the same place at the same time where you're mentally, you know, you're willing to go to those spots. You're willing to stay present. You're willing to stick to your game plan. And so many people can look like they're trying and go, Hey, I, 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 I did my best. I tried my best. I'm like, no, 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 that's actual, that's weakness. Like you, you, you haven't, you've, you've hidden behind the physical endeavor. Mm-hmm. So that's, um, that's the one thing there. And then the second thing I'm curious to hear about, what would you think about this? Um, obviously I think we can learn many skills in life. And would you say engagement is a skill that, that, that athletes can learn? It's not something that's just purely innate. And how would you help yeah. athletes engage? How would you help that if, if you are working with a group or even an individual, you know, any, any things you can think about, about how to hone that skill? Well, that's complicated, I think, because there's lots of reasons why somebody might be disengaging. I mean, it, it could speak to their, uh, the, the type of motivation that drives um, their, um, you know, that drives their participation within that sport. So it might be that it's, just, it's not seeing the value like they used to, or something, something might've even happened that has driven that engagement down. So when you're working one-to-one with people, you kind of unpick all of that. It could be, for example, that they have some irrational beliefs that, you know, are kind of festering that has affected their disengagement. Mm-hmm. Um, often, from my experience, people are disengaging in part because of anxiety, not like a clinical anxiety, but just like a nervousness around having those conversations or, or sometimes being seen to be the one in the group that is really keen to learn everything it's not cool <laughs> yep. you know we have this kind of this strange kind of a social phenomenon that we see in schools i see it in universities and i've seen it in sports teams as well it's not always always the cool thing to be the one that's seeking more knowledge you know <laughs> so there's sometimes there's like a i would say almost like a social anxiety around around being engaged there's like a stigma associated with it sometimes in some teams i work with so there's that those things you want to uncouple those things you know and so if i'm working with somebody on anxiety then obviously there's there's a beliefs there's beliefs and cognitions that we can work through but ultimately the more you engage the more you will be able to engage it's about doing first sure why not try this week to be more engaged okay what does that look like okay well it's having it's it's setting up meetings with the coach and saying can i just grab you for five ten minutes just have a chat about something it's it's going into the medical team and being proactive it's saying, look, it's a long season. What are the kinds of things that I can do to stave off injury? It's speaking to physio about things like prehab. It's, you know what I mean? So it's just in, engaging with that environment to the extent that you have a thirst for knowledge and you want to develop and Im- improve. So why not make this week about that? That's the thing that I'm going to learn this week. I'm going to learn how to engage more. Then the more you do it, the easier it becomes. Hmm. Now, this isn't, you know, Obviously, we we form we can form negative habits quite quickly, can't we? But um, you know, positive habit positive habit formation really has some of the similar rules. Yeah, around you, you kind of there is an element of forcing yourself to do it. It has to feel worth it. Say forcing yourself, or just mean encouraging yourself to do it. You know, and and make it a conscious effort to do it more. And then over time, it becomes less conscious. It might always be a conscious effort. It might always be something that you have difficulty with. You might never completely ameliorate the anxiety, for example, associated with uh, approaching a, um, a team leader and having those some of those conversations. But 
you will at least be able to experience functional anxiety. It will at least not stop you from avoiding some of those interactions. So I think for me, engagement is about doing. And then over time, it becomes easier. It becomes just something you do rather than something that takes so much you know, cognitive and physical effort to do so. Really, really well said. So um, if you can think of the opposite, and, and when I say the opposite, is it just something as simple as not engaging? And when I mean the opposite, the opposite of good habits and behavior. So when you see someone who's wanting to be a high performer, high achiever, um, and and you just know that actually they, they're not going to do it because of some things they are doing, would you go as far as to say, actually, it's just the opposite as an, a disengagement? Or is there anything more subtle and nuanced that you might notice that yeah. are not good habits and behaviors. I think, you know, I've, I've come across performers who are just so, so physically talented that they can get away with disengaging. But at some point, they will often pay the price for that disengagement because mm-hmm. not because performers don't just have a smooth journey in their careers. There'll be some point where they're going to wish they would have engaged properly with the medical staff, for example, because they'll become injured just like anyone else, you know. But there are some individuals who are just, their talent just drives through, you know, and, and they can get away with some of that disengagement. Um, I th- yeah. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I bet if you ask this question to 10 practitioners, we might have, <laughs> might have <laughs> different an- different answers. Of course. Um, in terms of, so... I think I might have lost track of the question precisely. Yeah, but I think I think I think you you've you've answered it quite well there. I think um, you know, people can hide behind the talent. And and again, we didn't need to really even get an answer to this, but it was like, what are the opposite or what are the, the bad habits and behaviors that that mm. that you see get exhibited? You know, because I asked the first question, but what are the common good habits common and behaviors? Good habits, it's like yeah. then what's the common bad habits and behaviors where you see yes. people who are super talented? that actually just just never make it that never fail so is it yeah, yeah. again it's interesting might... because like i said there really it's, it's like yeah sometimes one of the worst things that i've seen can happen to a team in some ways is somebody comes in with bad habits but always gets selected and seems to perform <laughs> seems to perform ridiculously <laughs> every week people are like well over here you're telling me there's all these good habits that oh, you know i might want to enact and form but over here i've got this individual who can't help but be a role model because they're a shining light in terms of their performance and they're not doing any of this. So I would say one of the bad habits would be to to kind of compare yourself against other performers. I like that. I like you know, that. And, and, and think that because they do something or don't do something, it means you should do or not do something. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you're playing your own, you're playing your own game here really. And um, you, you know, you have to think about your own performance journey, whether it's within this team or outside of this team. And I think that's one of the things that I've seen can kind of corrode teams, but also just individuals like comparing themselves. Oh, well, they never, they never do this. So why should I have to do it? Well, because they're them and you're you. You know, you're not the same person. So then it might be that, that you have to do a bunch more stuff than they do because they, they might have a physical gift or something, you know. Mm. But then down the line, um, they'll experience things that you might not experience and you'll be glad that you're you and not them. And also we don't always know based on people's external presentation, the precise things that they're doing to get themselves into that performance state that that enables them to perform well, you know, Mm -hmm. we can't just assume that they just turn up 
uh, can just do it. You know, I think there's a we we are, when when we uh, used to work a lot with um, still do a lot with Mark Jones. We used to work do some academy work at Stoke City Football Club, and we, we'd go in uh, every week or so and and do a very short session and some one to one work with players. You know, and one of the things that we used to say to players is is you know this stuff that we cover whatever you want to call it, psychological skill, mental preparation. Um, it, it, you know, not everybody has to do this. You might be the kind of person that just wants to turn up, put your boots on, go out there and play. And we used to use the example of Michael Owen, who, you know, would he he, he would he said that in the media in one of the interviews, I don't do any of this stuff. I turn yeah. up, I put my boots on, I'll go there and play. And then years later, sort of rolls back on that and says, you know, I wish I'd have paid more attention to that stuff because when things weren't going well, I really had nothing to fall back on. Mm. So we, we need to be careful when we compare ourselves to other performers because they'll face suffering just the same as you you will face suffering and theirs might be down the line and, and um they might have wished they engaged more. So mm. my advice to you as a performer is engage now, fortify yourself against the bad things that will come because you're a human being. And, 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 you know, you will face some suffering rather than, well, they're not doing it. So why, why should I type thing? So, yeah, I mean, it's, as I said, you asked many practitioners this and they'd have all different things. But mm. that, that to me stands out within the context of our conversation anyway. Yeah. Uh, great, great answer. I, I, I love comparison. I've been, I've been wrestling with that word. Um, have you come across it? it it's, it's a child's book, but it's for eight to 80 year olds. Um, the boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse. Have you have you come across that book? No, I've not seen it's that. Brilliant. It's 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 lovely pictures, but it's pretty much life advice. But on on one of the pages, like you can flick to any page, right? And um, my little eight year old, he's read it backwards and forwards five times. He loves it. And um, the the boy and the mole are sitting on this little branch, and and the boy asks the mole, basically turns around and says, "So, what what do you think the biggest waste of time is?" And basically, the mole turns around and says, "Comparing yourself to others." <laughs> it's mm. just literally just these little kind of nuggets um, of of life advice. There's there's lots of comparison. There's lots of validation. There's they don't use the kind of big words of validation and a lot of trend yeah, yeah. but a bit um, deep. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and then the other one, like I think the, the 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 boy's reflecting with the fox at some point, and and it's basically about four characters, four four personality types inverted commas yeah. that you can kind of mold through these um Interesting. well and, i i went into class the other day and i was doing a class on um emotional regulation and the room that i've been allocated within university is, is used for science education and they'll bring kids in they'll teach kids about science and stuff and there was a book on the front desk called mr grumpy okay and it's about this guy and um he's having a quiet day on his on his boat doing some fishing and these kids happen upon him you know and they jump in his boat and he goes on this journey with them downstream and the whole time he's trying to control his frustration and anger and it's like a really it's it's a kid's book but it's about yes you might get cross and things might not be ideal but actually if you open yourself up to experiences you might actually enjoy it if nice. you try to keep you know i love so that i think that you know it's kind of um it just happenstance that that happened but we're trying to communicate in ways that sometimes are very academic and very complicated. And one of the ways that I practice and work is use lots of athlete examples, lots of quotes, lots of stories mm. um, to get that information across. But yeah, I've not heard of that book. I'll have to yeah, check that's that good. out. Um, and then just the final bit on that, the, 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 the boy turns around and says, isn't it funny how everything happens on the inside, but all we see is the outside? 
Mm. And and just like that, that came to me like maybe body language and how we maybe social media, how we perceive things on the outside, but everything's actually happening on the inside. And it's, it just, it just literally one sentence. And it's just like, as an adult, you go, and it just opens your mind. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's actually a brilliant book. I've I've flipped through it 10 times now. So yeah, maybe check it out. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. So um, what I think might be good now, uh, Martin, maybe for our our remaining kind of uh, little time we have is, Maybe if we can drill into some more detail and maybe go a bit granular with some examples of how REBT maybe can apply to the following situation. So got a list of the following few situations. You hmm. can go as deep or shallow as you want with these, but but these are common things that I see come up with, with some of the people I'm trying to work with and coach. So first one, debilitating pre-match nerves and anxiety. How do you think REBT can can help that? So so one of the things we would do is is pick apart the extent to which the anxiety is debilitating. So what does it, what are you doing when you're experiencing that anxiety and what does it make you want to do? So what, what's the intent? So often when we think debilitating, it's, well, I'm not performing well, but, but sometimes pre-performance, it's often about avoidance, withdrawal and a change in behavior that, you know, or, or additional routines. And I know we spoke about that last time, somebody being overly ritualistic that might, might not be beneficial for lots of reasons. One of the things I've been talking about recently with players is the extent to which they get in a changing room, put their headphones on and just look at their feet for 45 minutes and how they have to think about, am I being a good teammate when I'm doing that? Even if it helps me to control my nerves, you know, really that's to me sometimes a sign of just a desperate level of anxiety that Mm -hmm. they're just taking themselves away and isolating themselves completely. So I think that's the first thing we would do. We would gather data on what does this debilitating anxiety look like behaviorally. And then we'd try to figure out well, what is the exact trigger of that anxiety. So so you might say, well, it's an important game. Okay, well, let's break that down. What is it about the game that's important? Oh, well, I know that there's friends and family in the crowd. Okay, well, what would be potentially anxiety provoking about friends and family being there? It might be, well, you know, I don't want to let them down and they've come a long way. Okay, well, what, what's so anxiety provoking about letting people down? You go, you can get deeper and deeper and deeper, you know? Sure. And then what happens is as you get that depth, you get closer to what the what the, the deeper belief might be and that belief might be irrational or rational. But in this particular example, say the deepest part we get to is, is a, you know, not wanting to let people down and the individuals might in our conversation we'll start to stumble across these deeper beliefs, which might be, I must not let, let people down. You know, when I do, it's terrible and I can't stand it when I let people down and um, letting people down makes me useless, worthless, a failure. It's just a, a brief example. Mm-hmm. And then we would work with those beliefs to help them to understand that they're very extreme. They're, you know, illogical. They're not consistent with reality. You might want not to let people down be you don't get to demand that you don't let people down you know so one approach might be to say oh you know don't worry about that you i'm sure you wouldn't let your family down I'm, you know i'm sure you've done lots of things that have made them proud and you start to balance that off sure. that that wouldn't necessarily be rbt 101 mm-hmm. we would we wouldn't take the low-hanging fruit we would try to get more depth and try to get underneath, you know, the, um, the demand there to not let people down or the, 
or the evaluation of letting people down that might be particularly extreme, you know? Mm. So we'd start to start to work with that belief mm. and we'd weaken it, help the individual to weaken that belief using where's the evidence? Is it logical? Is it useful? And then they'd start to develop a rational alternative. So I might want to not let people down, but I don't have to. Mm. Um, it might be, might be bad for me to let people down. But uh, it's not the end of the world. It's not terrible, you know, in a literal sense. You know, we, yeah. when we say in RVT, it's not the end of the world. It sounds a bit sort of uh, passive and, you know, but we're, we're, we're dealing with, we're treating language as literal. Mm-hmm. Semantics are very important in RVT. Yeah. And then they would develop rational beliefs. And then, you know, we, we, would, we would see the extent to which it helps the individual to ameliorate the debilitative anxiety. We're not necessarily driving towards reducing anxiety i.e you know the intensity or the level of anxiety we're interested in in reducing the debilitated aspect of that anxiety the debilitated enactment the expression of the anxiety you know mm-hmm. but from my experience what happens nine times out of ten is the level of anxiety diminishes too you know um and then once they understand that they can apply that in other areas but and then we are we can have a conversation then about what do you think about letting people down? Do you really think that's the case? We can go back and revisit the A as it's being perceived. So if we put that in the framework, the A, letting people down. Mm-hmm. The B, I must not let people down, it's terrible. The C debilitating anxiety. I'll help them to deal with the B. That doesn't stop me from returning to A. And so it's really interesting what you said. Is that how you really see things? You know, blah, blah, blah. Is that useful? Mm. And then we can also look at C directly. We can say, okay, well, how about um, before the game? Let's do some relaxation type stuff. Maybe let's think about developing this skill of breathing. Let's think about some maybe progressive muscular relaxation type things, you know? You get into the, you can still have those things nested within the RBT framework. It's just the the primary thing that I would focus on is unhooking those beliefs. Mm doesn't stop me from visiting these other areas though and so it's, think, it's, it's quite a complicated thing i think actually to help people with anxiety you know and then there's lots of routes you can take and there's lots of literature there but that would be the the, the mm. sort of broad rbt position mm. and just reflecting on on our last chat i i I've, I've kind of clipped one of our, our little conversations which is i calling it must versus want and and basically mm. yes i must get this win or i really want to get this win and i think just that reframing is just beautiful it's just really kind of reduces the pressure a little bit doesn't it and must yeah. is so tricky in sport mm. it's a very powerful it's obviously a very powerful word which is which is why we have it you know why do we have any words they mean something to us but um what we're trying to do in rbt is try to understand whether the must that the individual is using is based in preferences or whether it's based in objective fact so for example i must win this game to win three points Okay, that's that's fine because it's true. Mm-hmm. I must win this game because I want to is not true. So when we think about must in RBT, it is based within preferences. What you're doing is you're elevating your preference, your desire to a demand. We don't, you know, there, there's this this misconceptualization. Sometimes we just walk around looking for musts, and if we spot one as an RBT practitioner, we just stamp on it. You know, <laughs> so well, some musts are conditional. And that's fine. What we're interested in is is musts that have you know have no but after it. You know, so it, it, it's like um, 
it, it's like trying trying to really figure out with the individual where that must is coming from. Is it coming from a preference? And you're doing that discursively. You're not just jumping in as soon as you hear must. You know, yeah. I you know I want to do something. I want to do something, but I don't have to. You, you you're really looking for the but. If it's mm-hmm. I want to do something and therefore I must, then that's where it becomes more problematic. Mm. You know, and does this remember. thing? For like another situation, you might have already covered it, but I'm now thinking in the moment, catastrophizing in the moment, things are running away from you. You feel that match and that performance going away from you. Um, Similar type of thinking, similar type of conversations. Is there something that you would obviously work with each individual, but Mm. how do you, how do you help mitigate catastrophizing? Yes. So, I mean, one of my favorites, so uh, linking back to our conversation last week, one of the things that I would do with with performers is uh, is talk to them and help them to learn psychological skills that might help them in the moment. But actually the core focus should be on how do I help them to develop a philosophy of performance, which helps them in those moments so that they're not necessarily having like having to do like crisis interventions on themselves in the moment. So yeah. you try to work with them to understand that things can be very, very, very bad. You can add as many varies as you want, but they can never be truly awful because awful means worse than hundred percent bad which is not possible. It's awful is the worst thing imaginable. Now, similar to the conversation we just had, if the individual says the word awful, my first instinct would be to say, when you say awful, what do you mean? And if they say, I genuinely mean terrible, I mean it, the worst thing possible. Okay, the individual is awfulizing. If they say, oh, no, no, I don't. when I say awful, I just mean it's really bad. It's like, okay, fine. <laughs> you know, it's not... It, it, it might not be helping them, but it isn't irrational. Those are two different things, potentially. So, um, one of my favorite activities to do with people is called the badness scale. So you have a scale from zero to 100% bad. And what you would do is you would you would give them scenarios. And you would get them to place them on the badness scale. So you would say, okay, missing a penalty in the FA Youth Cup final. And they might say, oh, that's the, oh that is the worst thing I could imagine. They put it right at the top of the badness scale. You know, it's like awful then you say okay you uh, get an injury that puts you out for six weeks which means you miss the fa youth cup final i say oh that might be a bit worse so they now have to move missing a penalty down a little bit and and then you say you get a career-ending injury and all this is in within the context of obviously a safe you know yeah yeah yeah. just throwing these things out for a laugh you are working with somebody you're trying to figure out this stuff um and then you know then you can go into more personal things like you lose a loved one you contract the terminal illness. And what happens is the individual starts to recalibrate their idea of badness in relation mm-hmm. to these performance factors within the context of the, the other bad things that you've, you've introduced. It's clever. It's very clever. And, and you know, when, when you get to the top, you have losing a loved one. Okay. You lose two loved ones. You lose three loved ones. You can keep going with this because we're, we're a creative species. We can, we can keep thinking about, worse and worse stuff so you never top out awfulness yeah you, you never get to awful so you know you have to use that carefully but i think that helps people to understand when i'm using this language it is inappropriate and unhelpful mm. let me try and use language that is more appropriate and more helpful so if it's a case of an individual on the field spiraling down then for the first part you would you would make sure they're not they're not awfulizing they're able to see that from a balanced perspective even if it's them saying okay this is going badly what you would do next is then have them tell themselves what to do next. Simply tell your body what to do. Switch back on. Next ball. 
Okay, be intense. Keep up the intensity. What's the game plan? You would try to get them to key into um, aspects of the game that, that, that are going to help them and are actually relevant to their performance rather than, oh, no, you know, I hope I don't mess up again and don't mess up again and don't make another mistake. Um, it's more about get back in position, switch back onto the game plan, next ball, next movement. Mm. So there's a refocusing that takes place there in the moment. But I think that should that needs to be underpinned by this philosophy of there's nothing awful can happen today in this performance. Because you know, it just doesn't, as a concept, is it inappropriate? Yeah, totally. But I think when you're working with somebody and they do experience something in life that is genuinely socially understood to be a catastrophe, you know, now we can talk about semantics all day, but people experience really, you know, harsh stuff in life. Say an athlete says, you know, less, yes, they are lost a grandparent. I'm not going to sit there and go, right, let's whack it on the badness scale. You know what I mean? I'm not going to say, how bad is it really? More sensitivity, yeah. I mean, more sen- you're more like, likely to, to, to sympathise and empathise with, mm-hmm. with the individual. And when the time is right, you would, you would make the functional argument. You would say, look, I understand this is super, super difficult. This belief that you have, this, that it's awful and terrible and nothing worse could happen, how is that helping you to be there for your family, to try to move past this, this event to be the person that other people can rely on at the funeral. You know, so you start to key into how functional is this belief rather than is this belief rational, logical. You mm-hmm. can have that, you can take that conversation up at a different point. Totally. Mm-hmm. So, you know, any of these tools and skills and arguments that we make within disputation are, are always within the context of what's going on for the individual mm-hmm. and usually within the context of time mm-hmm. as well. You let enough time pass and the belief diminishes. Have you, so, you know, you have to bear that in mind. Yeah, no, no, really well said. Have you come across the two arrows from the Buddhist teaching? Oh, it it sounds familiar. Yeah, well, well basically, Please it's not me. to be struck by the second arrows. This is within our control. You know, you get that first arrow that hits you, but the second yes. arrow is a reaction to the first arrow. It's like you get hit with that first arrow that you can't avoid, right? But don't mm. get hit with that second arrow. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's the mind. It's the mentality yeah. of what's your reaction to it. And it sounds quite similar. And I, I got reminded of it again recently, but I remember reading it years ago. And it's such a, such a lovely way of looking at things, isn't it? That, you know, you're going to get more than two arrows. You're going to get lots yes. of arrows. Of course, don't don't yeah. get don't get struck by the second, third, and fourth yeah. arrow. <laughs> and, and I also think that um, you know, it just reminds me of something else there. When you said second, it's it's sort of related and sort of unrelated. But I, I really like that that second arrow idea. But one of the things that I've talked to people about, and I've kind of written about in this, um, I think I mentioned last time, we've got a book coming out to an RBT book, is this idea of telling yourself a second story. And this comes comes from a, an author, Paul Dubois who mm. was kind of the forerunner to Albert Ellis in terms of RBT, the person who developed this, these ideas of rational therapy just before um, Albert Ellis. And I took most of this from Donald Robertson, who's written, written some brilliant books on Stoicism and has written about the integration of Stoicism and RBT really nicely. Oh, nice. And he talks about Paul Dubois, and I, so I started to, to get everything I could on Paul Dubois. He talks about this second story idea. So the first story might be that this is bad. And that might be true, at least true for you. Um, but if you tell your second story that it's, that not only is it bad, it's awful, you then elevate the badness of that to, to, to an inappropriate level that you now can't prove, that it now it can't be awful for you. 
you know, because there's worse things that you can think of in this moment now. So how can it be awful for you if you can think about something even worse? Mm -hmm. So the second story, be careful not to tell yourself the second story, because sometimes you can't avoid the first story. Sometimes it's raw appraisal. It's raw perception. Exactly. It is bad. This is one of the things that I don't, I don't, sometimes I don't like this sleight of hand that we have on failure. Failure is feedback. Mm -hmm. Failure is whatever it is to the person experiencing the failure. I might say failure is bad. I mean, the, you know, the word failure, we, how are we going to convince ourselves that failure is a good thing? Yeah, you might learn some stuff and it gives you opportunities, but in the moment, you know, failure is not a good thing. It's not what we necessarily want to do. So the first story you might tell yourself is accurate, that it's bad and it's not ideal, but you have to be careful of the second story. Yeah. That it's awful and terrible, yeah. you know, that, and that's mm -hmm. the bit that you can really start to start to develop a philosophy of, around of how do I deal with, with failure because I will experience failure. If I'm doing the right things and I have the right goals and I'm, and I'm progressing, then I'm going to experience failure. Exactly. Part and parcel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Part and parcel, yeah. isn't it? It sounds very yeah. similar. It is, the, it is that second story, that second arrow, and, it, and, and it's beautiful. So, um, listen, I think there's a couple of quick questions that that just on a personal level. Um, let's talk about your book. What, what, so give us some of the details of the book. I know it's not out yet, but, you know, what can people expect? What what, what can we get our juices excited for? Because I'm, I'm going to be ordering that when that comes out. Yeah, so this has been a long time in the making, really. Um, I sat down originally with Andrew Wood, who unfortunately um one of the kind of long covid victims oh, no. so andrew woods people would know him very fond of andrew um great practitioner great person to work with just a really nice guy unfortunately got covid and, and didn't recover hmm. and the project we were working on just before he he kind of um had that experience was this book so i managed to 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 to, to write the early parts of this book very quickly. I was write, I was writing you know, tens of thousands of, word, of, of words a week and it just seemed to be endless. And we, myself and Andrew made a decision that we didn't know what this was going to be yet. We were just going to write and see what happens. And then, you know, Andrew stepped away and I thought, okay, well, I want to continue this and, and keep going with this. Um, and really it was kind of driven by wanting to tell people about RBT and specifically how to use it in the performance environment. But also I wanted to be really in depth with this. So it's as big as the publisher would let me get away with. Okay. <laughs> you know, nice, I really nice. pushed it. And there are multiple occasions where I submitted the manuscript and they were saying, look, this is too big. And I try to try to fight for that. And I think I won most of those battles, but I did have to roll back on, on some stuff. So it's a real detailed, comprehensive portrayal of RBT theory, RBT practice. It pushes RBT into new spaces. It helps us to understand how we can use the framework more flexibly. We're not obsessed with beliefs. We can work with G, A, and C separately. We can work with it alongside B. We can integrate it with psychological skills training. We can integrate it with the vast tomes of emotion regulation literature that we know works really, really well and has good evidence. Um, you know, I spend an entire chapter just on goals. That's never nice. been done with an RBT before because mm. I just really feel it's the, the, the gold aspect is really, really important. So it's a really in-depth look at this thing. Um, Amazing. And I and when, a, when do, you, a, do you know when roughly it might come out? Obviously, it might not be quite date-wise when, when this gets released. but um, yeah, It's looking like late December. I mean, it's available for pre-order 
Nice. Um, so it's looking sort of mid to late December. So that's quite exciting. Yeah, and even, Christmas. People, people should buy it even if it's just for, for the illustrations. I work with an illustrator. <laughs> cool. Um, I don't want to reveal too much about what those illustrations are and what they mean, but um, it, I'm, I'm interested to get people's perceptions on on what they think these illustrations are about. So each oh, chapter awesome. starts with an illustration. And on the front of the book, you can see um, there's an illustration on there. It's a dragon. So Intriguing. kind of interesting what that means. And there are clues within the book about that and outside of the book. Brilliant. Um, and and yeah. where, where would people best order it from your website directly? Um, the Route Edge website, Route Edge or Taylor and Francis or Amazon, mm-hmm. um, any of those, and, and just you know, any book supplier. Mm. To, and do you want to give a shout out for the, the title so people can search that? Yes, it's The Rational Practitioner. Awesome. It has a longer title, which I keep forgetting, but it's something <laughs> like the Sports Psychologist's Guide to Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy. Brilliant. The Rational Practitioner. Yeah, that's a, that's a great title. It's just like a, a bit rhymy, but quite catchy, and it kind of it just yes. says what it is in yeah. the tin. I like it. I like but it. But also, I, next year in April, we have another book coming out, which is an edited book, which is practitioners writing about um, their use and delivery of different CBTs. So cool. I've written the RBT chapter, but we have oh, cognitive therapy, schema therapy, ACT, mm-hmm. um, compassion focused therapy. Nice. Um, so we, uh, you know, it's, we have this broad church, mm. this broad family of CBTs. Nice. How do we use it in sport? So yeah. that's coming out in April. So I'll, I'll mm. kind of sp- yeah, sign sign both that and and hopefully yeah. we'll speak of then. And very finally, um, banana walkers. So brilliant. Yes, banana walkers. No idea what it means. Um, I can't take credit for the name. So yeah, myself and Hugh Gilmore. Um, people will probably know from Twitter and he might have trained them in, in a motivational interviewing at some point. So he's prolific in that. He came up with that name. But me and Hugh trained in New York together in uh, RBT. And um, one of the practices that they talk to you about is banana walking, which is basically putting a leash around banana and taking it for a walk. <laughs> and it's it's known in RBT as a shame attacking exercise. I, the idea is that you understand that your belief that um, and must be viewed favorably and it's awful uh, to be embarrassed and stuff you can challenge that kind of those kinds of beliefs by awesome. doing something ridiculous they also would get you to stand on the street corner and sing you know it's like wow. so it's like a behavioral activity it inoculates you to an extent against some of the anxiety you experience but also challenges that belief that it's terrible and the world would end if you were in an embarrassing situation have you have you walked a banana then I've not personally. No, no. I've not personally walked a banana. <laughs> but, um, it, you know, it is, it, it is, it is tempting sometimes yeah. just to see but, what the re- reaction is. Well, that's, that's a little, I was going to ask this question earlier. The, um, the, the, the cynics, they were obviously at the same time as the stoics and the cynics mm. used to literally live in Hessian sacks and like, like really put themselves in like the most uncomfortable situations yeah. to completely just train for, you can take everything away from me. I don't necessarily agree with it, but maybe that's like a modern version of the cynics, banana walking yes. rather than kind, kind of, of yeah that's it but you so when we work with performers we will adapt that to, mm. to different situations different shame <laughs> attacking exercises that are more performance relevant but yeah we, so we meet every four weeks nice. so if people want to get engaged with that it's a special interest group we meet 7 p.m every four weeks if you go to eventbrite you can sign up it'll add it to your calendar and it's just a really nice network of individuals from the clinical space from the performance world people who are trained in rbt people who aren't and we just throw around ideas and we normally get through about two questions in about an hour and a half because we, <laughs> we go to such depth. So 
if that floats your boat and that's something you're interested in, then please, uh, please come along. It's free. Amazing. And, uh, well, keep well it going done. for as long as it lasts. Well done. How, how long has it been running for? I think we've done four or five. Amazing. Yeah, Good stuff. Like that. Uh, keeps keeps growing and keeps, keeps having interesting conversations. Well, I'll I'll be checking out if that uh, lines with my calendar because that sounds bloody brilliant to to, to come across to that. Yeah, so, good um, to have you. Yeah, listen, um, Martin, again, wow, this has just been a super in-depth conversation. Thank you so much once again. Like I've said before, generous with your time, your, just, your knowledge, your passion for the subject. And I just feel really honored to have spent a, a good few hours with you over the last couple of weeks. So thank you so much for today. No, the honor is mine. Thank you for inviting me back for, for a second time. And yeah, always good to talk to a fellow uh, practitioner about this stuff. Yeah, I can't call myself quite a practitioner in that field, but you know, trying to, trying to do my little piece in the world and, and just loving it as I'm doing it. So no, th- thanks so much, man. Thank you. See you again.